Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind the Gap, Enablix's only podcast about the gap between sales and marketing. My name is Nick Zeke Lopez, and today I am joined with Christina Libby. Christina, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I am awesome. Uh, Christina, can you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, why you're here? <laughs> sure. Um, my name is Christina Libby. I work at a company called Hypergiant. So we're an enterprise AI software company um, that basically works in space, defense, and critical infrastructure. That means that what we're really concerned with is a lot of the like quote unquote boring data problems that actually impact how the world operates. So that's things like figuring out uh, the problems within the energy grid so that we don't end up with mass energy outages due to climate change and sort of like unforeseen, previously unpredictable events. That's the space at the bottom of sort of where we work. And uh, I came into this role from sitting as a chief science officer, where I was really interested in sort of like strategy and the direction of technology, um, where it was headed and sort of how it was impacting our collective future and a whole bunch of other roles as well. <laughs> well, and, and so I'm interested in that. Did you so you said you were a chief science officer. Mm -hmm. Did you start in, let's call it the AI space and then transition into marketing AI? Or have you always been in marketing and you kind of crept towards AI? How did, how did that work? My master's degree is in international security. And I actually studied like international politics and conflict and then moved from that into tech and marketing. I worked at Microsoft for a number of years, then really kind of worked in the startup space for a long time. And then... The interesting thing about Hypergiant is it's kind of a fusion between where I started, right? Um, thinking about these big geopolitical, social infrastructure questions and technology. Um, and technology at this point is also a social question, also an infrastructure question, not just a technical question, right? We are sort of at this moment in our collective society where we are letting technology make choices for how we want society to be instead of making choices for how we want society to be and then building the technology that underlays that. And so I think artificial intelligence is a very interesting part of that conversation where whatever happens with artificial intelligence is going to dictate the way that our society functions. And so trying to be a part of that conversation um, to me is really about sort of asking bigger questions about how do we want to be human? How do we want the world to operate? How do we want our technology to um, change and, and improve the systems that affect us on a daily basis? I, I totally get that. And and for me, a lot of it is about how do we get to a city where I could take electronic scooters everywhere yeah. and, and maybe take less cars? That's totally fair. I am aligned. I mean, I would love to live in a city where cars were like where a city wasn't designed for car transportation to happen every day, right? Or like, like, I live in New York City, right? So I spend, I mean, I like take the subway to the airport because I get very car sick. But I often look around the city and I kind of, you have these questions, right? About like, what if we only needed cars for like the most minimal part of our, like of our day? Right. And so rather than seeing streets flooded with cars, we saw them flooded with other things. Or like, would we need as many streets? There was an interesting article in the New York Times over the weekend that was talking about putting white paint or like reflective white paint on um, rooftops and how that actually is like really important for climate change because it stops cities from being like heat bubbles. But they said something so interesting, which is that 
we have the opportunity to do that with enough building roofs to be like 44,000 square feet or something like that, which is like essentially the size of a whole nother borough in Manhattan, right? So if you started to think about that rooftop space as like changeable or editable space in a city landscape, like how does that change the way you think about the city? But then also if we could somehow like maybe have the number of streets that we needed to have in the city, well, like what else would you do with that space? And I think those questions are really about like, how do you want to live in the city? What do you want it to be? Like, do you want those roads to be reclaimed green space? Do you want them to be new levels of housing? Do you want them to be, you know, storefronts or like, or do you want them to be bike storage, right? There's a bunch of those questions that I think are, are like absolutely fascinating. And how do we turn all of those rooftops to be rooftop bars? Right. That's an option. <laughs> in, a, in a pandemic world, that feels like probably what the majority of people hope those rooftops yeah. are. Yes. And it's totally socially distanced just for, from you get yes, your exactly. building and I'll get my building and we'll just be on the other I'll side. I'll have those like little um, tin cans with the wire. <laughs> yeah, so the question comes down to how do we get to a society where we have 44,000 rooftop bars like what you said? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what you said, but yes, yes okay. That, that's right. And the question I have is, so so you, so you Hypergiant has an AI-based product that the vast majority of people uh, won't understand how it works, but, but do understand how it does. And even when I hear you talk about what Hypergiant is and, and what you guys do, it's obvious you're talking about the problems you address. How do you find... Uh, the balance or how do you find the way to talk about the difference between the marketing speak of, of, of what you do and, and perhaps the sales speak of, of how you do it and, and the details there? So it's really, um, I think that question is a line that we often have to balance at the company, right? And so um, Hypergiant was started by Ben Lamb. He's a serial entrepreneur and he's pretty great at figuring out sort of the intersection point between like what pop culture is really interested in and then like where technology is headed. And so when he launched Hypergiant, he was kind of tapping into this sort of cultural fascination with space, this sort of retro futurism, this disgruntledness that people were feeling with this idea of like, where, where is the future we were promised, right? Like, you know, why are you 40 years on this earth or 50 years on this earth? And like, we don't have flying cars yet, right? And like, we have climate change as a problem. And like, our cities aren't clean. And like, where are self-driving cars? All of these ideas that in the 50s and 60s were promised to us or sort of theorized or that people thought by like 2020, of course, we'll have flying cars, you know? Yeah, just and, think of the Jetsons, right? Right, exactly. And so that was at the heart of, the brand, the brand that was built, right? And sort of this brand promise. And it was pretty central to us taking the market position that we've had, right? Which is so many AI companies come out and they're like artificial intelligence, this machine learning, this, and they're talking about it at a really technical level, but they're missing out on sort of the excitement and even the romance and the potential of what the future looks like. And then Hypergiant, furthermore, in that negotiation actually hit on this really sort of not utopian idea, but the sort of like techno-utopian sort of techno-futurism idea, which is that like technology actually makes it possible to build the future. And I think those insights into the building of the brand have helped to open up a lot of doors for us. They have helped to sort of open a lot of conversations because ultimately the decision maker who is sort of buying our solutions or buying the products that we're bringing to market 
it's often not the person who is really highly technical. It's a C-level decision maker. And so that person also is in a leadership position, also sort of feels this question of where is the future that I, I thought I was building towards? Where is the future that I was promised? Where is the future that I am creating? Um, more so than it is someone being like, you know, can this happen in Python? Or, you know, like the, this is the, I have, you know, 70% of the people working on this project speak this code base. How do your projects work with that? And, and I think that's one of the things about technology that we often forget is it can be so alienating to people when we speak about it at an extremely technical level. But when we're speaking at something at an extremely technical level, all we're doing is sort of describing a bigger idea. Right. And so we as a brand, we we choose to enter on the bigger idea. We choose to enter sort of in that conversation of the beauty and the power of the opportunity. And then we back into here's how we can do it. Here's how we can think about it. Of course, in the process of our sales and marketing cycle, we come at it in different levels of depth at different times, but but we pretty much always go sort of layman terms first. And I think any company you look at that is really successfully marketing technology does that because ultimately we're all kind of people at the end of the day, right? Like we, we no matter how deep my knowledge is on a specific topic, it's a lot easier if you can just talk to me about it in regular terms. And, and then we can make sure that we're both having the same conversation before we dive really deep into the techni- technical language behind it. Yes. So do you find yourself having to transition or get more specific as you work down like the the sales and marketing funnel? Like maybe at the total top of the funnel, you could talk in very broad marketing terms about what Hypergiant does. But do you ever feel yourself in your messaging and in the way that you talk with your sales team having to get either more specific in how or what you do as people get pushed down that funnel to purchase? Yes. We get technically more specific the further down the funnel people go, but we never get too in the weeds. And I think um, partially we're sort of changing that perspective. And and also for a long time, we built a lot of different things across a lot of different categories, right? And what that meant was that we were a lot about showing you what was possible, you know? And that's really, and a full credit goes to our founder, Ben, that was really about gaining a lot of market share, right? And gaining a lot of potential and a lot of possibility and sort of making this big, big noise for a company that, you know, still really was in the early stages of its development. And now as we're sort of maturing in as a company, Ben stepped down as CEO. He brought in a new CEO, Mike Betzer. And Mike is really focused on sort of solidifying and simplifying our our offerings. And so as we do that, our marketing strategy is changing to be a little bit more industry specific, a little bit more technical, a little bit more case study focused, but still within this sort of the beauty of the brand potential and this really, this idea that is sort of core to our business, which is that we do believe in impossible things, right? Like we do believe that like we have this team of just like really incredible, very smart engineers, technologists, UX designers, brand thinkers who are actually kind of capable of meeting these great big, huge challenges that you know, the energy industry has, the Department of Defense has, space companies have. And so we have to play that line a little bit between being like, this is exactly what we do and 
this is what we can do. And so because of that, our relative sort of positioning, it, it's more of like slight changes, some more technical depth, really until we have that sales handoff. And then when sales really takes over, it becomes a lot more deep, a lot more quickly, right? And that process of evaluating, is this a real customer? Is this a great market opportunity for us or not? How do you currently uh, interact with your sales team? How, what is your current way to find alignment between say, sales and marketing? And how, how do you ha- what does that interaction look like for you? Uh, so I talk to our CRO, David Young, um, I don't know, 15 times a day. We're, we're really intertwined. Um, but also really making sure that everything they need that we are able to help provide them and sort of give them every material that they need in order to make that transition to us to sales. So um that sounds super ideal. Yes, we are two different orgs. Like yes, we have two different remits, but we are so closely integrated that it really feels like we're just sort of everything is a collaborative um effort. And I think that is rare and I think it is wonderful. And that's um really like a, a part of the reason why this work is is actually such a joy. Since you guys work so closely together, do do you ever think of like switching? Like like uh it's just switching between CMO and CRO. One day you're CRO, one day you're CMO, you go back and forth. No, I would be terrible at it, but thank you very much. Um no, no, it would be I think it's, you know, sales is a discipline all on its own. And um it's good that there are sales leaders. <laughs> You know, there's some inherent tension between sales and marketing, right? Sales is thinking month to month, possibly quarter to quarter, and marketing is thinking, I mean, I I am rarely ever sort of in a rush to hit the end of month goal for anything, right? And much more thinking, okay, what can we accomplish this quarter? What are we doing six, nine months, a year from now? How are we setting up for the opportunities that sales needs us to do? And so I think in that, there is a tiny bit of friction, Um but there doesn't have to be, right? And I think this idea that sales and marketing, that there is friction there is a little bit short-sighted. I think that happens when you don't have strong leadership and when you don't have a very clear vision of who your customer is, why they need you, what you are selling to them, and then also um, where you want your business to go, right? And and I think that's something that is really exciting about where Hypergiant is now is that we have a very clear vision on what we want to do in the market and who we want to sell to and what we want to sell them. And so then it's so synergistic to to work together in a really collaborative fashion. Given the nature of your product, do you have any uh, tips or suggestions that you'd have for educating uh, your your sales team or 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 really understanding the the competitive differentiation between your solution and and the other ones that are out there? Did you ever read the Blue Ocean book? I forget what it's called. Um, there's this book around Blue Ocean strategy, or it's a theory around Blue Ocean strategy. I used to be a professor, and I would teach this book. Um, and now I forget what it is called. But uh, Blue Ocean strategy is this idea that you like find your blue ocean, right? You find the place where there is opportunity, and then you sort of stick there. One of the interesting things about our brand is that our brand itself has created opportunity vis-a-vis other companies who essentially do very similar sorts of activities to us. And so there is part of what makes us successful is this big brand idea, this sort of blue ocean that we are an artificial intelligence company focused on space defense and critical infrastructure 
focused on sort of these boring problems that we think are necessary to evolve humanity as we sort of go to our next 5, 10, 50 years forward. And so that kind of cuts into the competitive language, right? So I do think you need to have an understanding of your competition. You need to have an understanding of sort of where you fall vis-a-vis the competition because that's how you do a bunch of tactical marketing. However, I also think you can get so bogged down in competitive market positioning, in understanding what the competition is doing, in your wins against the competition. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, purchases are still emotionally, right? And so if you are on the same level or even 5% worse or 5% better than someone who is sort of offering the same thing, well, then how does someone make the choice? Well, they're making the choice based on where they feel the most level of emotional attachment. And that actually has nothing to do with what your competition is doing at all. And so I think that is kind of like an interesting thing to think about. And and I think because we are a very brand-focused organization, when David came on board, he inherently understood that. We get to a little bit be cool. We're a little bit the cool kids in a room of sort of otherwise If we were just like an ML ops company or we were just like an AI solutions company, a lot of those companies are really marketed in a very like business and we get to exist in sort of this other like brand kind of like, um, and and quite like a high fashion brand, honestly, in a certain way category. And that is a true help for selling, but also, you know, we have tons of competitive research. We do a lot of market research. We are constantly sort of understanding what our competition is doing. But at the same time, from a marketing perspective, I'm like very interested in our voice, our message, how we talk about what we do, how we sort of tell those big, interesting stories in a way that is that we are the only people to do that because it is so authentic to who we are as a company, more so than I am necessarily going out and batting against the competition. We're like the the market that we're going after is enormous and we don't have to do that yet. When I worked at Microsoft, we did a lot of competitive analysis and we had to do a lot of that work. And I just think that was because the the market was a lot more crowded and the players were a lot more established. And we're just like in a totally different market where it's not, you know, we're not like a telco, right? It's Yeah. It's yeah. yeah. I'm waiting for the uh, hyper giant uh, Supreme collab uh, <laughs> to come out. From your lips to the Supreme CEO's ears. May it happen. <laughs> um, we're probably like, if you think about it, I mean, that was like a core part of what Ben wanted to do when he started the company, right? Like he wanted to make a company that could just as easily partner with a off-white and make like a hypergiant shoe that was like, you know, had an IoT sensor that powered some like really cool data dashboard as he was wanting to work with, you know, the Department of Defense on taking, you know, on building a satellite constellation, right? And part of that is possible because we wanted to play in this space that was a little bit more pop culture oriented. That was that was more about the idea of what we wanted the future to be than it was just about the technical capacity of who we are. Yes, I'm, I'm imagining like an edge IoT device uh, from your shoes that goes to track exactly where you are on the movement. It just lights up your shoes when you take a step. So we yes. have we have used AI to get ourselves back to where we were in the late 80s with like light up shoes. But, but I mean, also it's like, I mean, I think 
edge computing is going to see like a massive growth in the next five years, right? And often we talk about that in terms of like, okay, how can a business run a company? But but at the end of the day, right, it's like a lot more data from a lot more places that can totally shape the world around us. But we have to be thinking about what we want from it, right? Like, do do we want light up sneakers or do we want to be able to show do we want to be able to take the data, which, I mean, you can kind of get it with phones already, but right, like transportation data and then reimagine cities or like, but could it, would it be cooler if it was like in our shoes? Would we all feel part, like there's a question of so much of your data is sold now, but like, what if you were more privy to that data, right? Like, what if you were like, I'm buying these cool light up shoes because I, that each time that lights up, I know that that data is going towards like this research project, which is rethinking how to use city streets, right? Like, I know you're being totally facetious, but I think that is also this like interesting data question, which is right now so much of our data is in commercial spaces and commercialized. And that brings a lot of questions about a lot of questions, a lot of questions about data and privacy and security and what we want to do with it and how, you know, companies make money off of it. But if the consumer is more connected to what is possible from artificial intelligence, what is possible from big data, what is possible from machine learning, there are so many other ways that information can be applied in our futures and in our current lives. And like getting people excited about a next step in technology is like a really powerful opportunity for a brand. And I think that's the thing that Hypergiant does is it's like, let's not just sell tech to businesses. Let's like make sure that we are educating everyone about what's possible with technology. It's interesting because you look at a company like like Snowflake, the, the database company, and they talk about how data is going to be the new currency or data is the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the discussion we don't have enough is is where, you know, almost data empowerment, where you own your own data and you can choose where to put that data to work to to influence the things around you. I mean, I am extremely excited for that future, but it's also sort of the same thing that we are talking about with businesses, right? Which is like, you know, we talk about this path of from data to decisions, right? And we want to like shorten that path as much as possible for businesses. And the, sometimes that are just products like our product Hyperdrive, which is all about like um, ML app solutions and, and taking models into production. Sometimes it's about sort of this bigger, it, like we talk about it like an intelligent operating picture, which helps companies take from a bun- data from a bunch of different data silos put it together in a way that's easy to visualize, that makes everyone from like the data scientist to the CEO be able to use that data against whatever their their end means are. Why can't consumers and community groups and organizations also do the same thing with their data? Like I think we because of the difficulty of collecting data, because of where that data is stored, we and because of the, you know, there are um thresholds to to being able to access that data, a certain amount of like technical expertise. But like when we do have access to that data, we can start to understand our world in a really different way. And the secret is that there's like a ton of data out there. We're just not really good at visualizing it and interpreting it right now. Right. And so I think like I get really excited about this idea of like what if we were to ask bigger questions about what we wanted out of the world and like who we wanted to be? And then we were actually like able to dig into that data and then find ways to like 
positively encourage people to do things while like collecting that data, right? Like city bike is sort of a great example of like, there are like rewards in the city bike app for doing things that are ultimately sort of like moving the bike around to better parts of like where city bike needs those bikes. And so it's like, okay, that is like, that is a company doing that with data, but it's also like encouraging you to act in a way that's positively social, right? Like, because you drop your bike off a little bit further away, you get a small amount of money, but that means people who need the scooter are able to find a scooter where they need it, right? But think about like other things, like think about if you could be incentivized to recycle and as a result of that, I don't know, like a piece of public art was made or like something like that, yeah, right? Like- yeah, well, I mean, so I think about, so for instance, I, I save my plastic bags uh, and then I put them into a bin at uh, at the Publix uh, where they just go away and they say they recycle them in it. And I know that they can turn those plastic bags into like park benches. But like, what if you could, you could just like turn, when you turn in 80 plastic bags and you could almost track them along the way to, to, to becoming like a park bench or something like that. So you could actually see the impact of the little things you're doing and, and how they go to change or, or make something better. Right. And so you're able to very clearly see the path between your action and a positive outcome. And I think that's one of these like misconceptions around big data is that like, you know, we think about disinformation campaigns, we think about Facebook is selling our data, we think about all of these things that have had a negative impact on society. Cool, not going to argue with there. But why don't we, why can't data become almost like a gamification or an encouragement for us to live our lives? Because what we're seeing is even like collective action, right? Like I think Fitbit tries to do this a little bit, which is like, you know, you've walked 200,000 steps or I don't know, whatever it is. And like, you know, you're in the top 2% of people. Okay. But like, give me something more interesting, which is like, you know, um, in New York City, if everyone walked as many steps as you've walked today, it would like cut your carbon emissions here. Or like, because you walked this many steps today, it means like you don't need to pay for carbon offset if you take a trip. Like, I don't know exactly what it is, but like that kind of thinking about like positive connected social data empowerment is like, there is so much, and we really don't do this as a company. So we are kind of like, but we, we talk about the promise, but I think this is like that future is a possibility for us. If we start to think about our data if we start to take it out of technical speak and put it into layman speak, right, which we sort of started off this conversation talking about, then all of a sudden it's about like inspiring the public to think about all of the different things that their data can do. And that's really exciting. It's and we were building this project called, product called Hyperdrive, which is about um, helping data scientists get models into production faster. And people are often like asleep, right? You like say that sentence and then if someone's not a data scientist, they're like, why do I care? Well, why do you care? Someplace between 80 and 90% of models that are made never get it into production. Again, why do I care? Well, you care because the more models that make it into production, the better all of our models become, the better our systems become, right? And so if we can fix that part of the path, then what it's like is like, taking 1995 websites and making them Squarespace. And if we can do that, then a lot more people can do a lot more things 
with data and it takes it out of the realm of just big businesses doing complicated enterprise-related data solutions and into some of these things that are maybe more tangible, maybe more exciting, or maybe are just like bring forward these cool, fun, future-forward ideas that you know, a data scientist working for NASA just wouldn't be thinking about. Yeah. And and to bring that back to like, you know, the sales and marketing, I really like what you just did where you started with almost a really specific sales problem, uh, like that, like a very specific use case. And they said, okay, well, why do you care? Well, you brought that back out into like a marketing message. Uh, and then you brought it even a more of a marketing message, but but and I think we all try to do that. But you didn't go all the way down to like you make more money. Like like that's I think where a lot of us have that problem is is when you get at the base of it, it seems like it's all the same. Yeah, and I mean I think honestly, make more money. It feels like table stakes. Like you know, like being like, oh, like isn't every technology solution supposed to help you make more money and be more efficient and all of these things? But for us, it's like if we stop at make more money then we're not a good enough company. Like we're not the right partner for you. If all you want to do is make more money, you don't deserve to work with these engineers in our business and these designers and these like the people who work in this company are so smart and like so talented and they are so interested in how to actually build a better, more equitable, more interesting world. And so if a company is just interested in a in a better bottom line, then like there are other people to go work with. But like if a company wants to increase their bottom line, great, but then also do more. I think we are in this moment where, you know, we're seeing it with workers' rights, we're seeing it with sort of just general trend lines. It's like companies that just want to make more money, they're gonna go out of business in the next 15 years. Like companies that have a dedicated social mission, companies that are focused on doing more than just being a company, like they're going to kill it in the next 15 to 30 years because they're going to be doing the right things. And I think those those are the companies we want to stand behind, but that's also the way we want to talk to our customers. And, and we believe we can be a guiding light. We feel like we can inspire people and encourage them to have big ideas and do impossible things. And we want to stand beside them and help to accelerate that journey. And I think that is who we are. And that's why you see that in all of the work that we do. That was my recent discussion with Christina Libby, CMO of Hypergiant. And although we didn't cover it in the interview, uh, something really interesting about Christina is she's had a past life before she was in marketing and continues to go outside of marketing today. I taught at NYU and I taught at the University of Florida before that, uh, which was great, loved those jobs. And then I had a really severe brain injury a couple of years ago. So my memory for names, uh, I've, I, I still struggle with it a bit. Too much to stand in front of a classroom and like, you know, I used to be able to quote passages and books and things like that. I, I like to do a lot of things. I, mean, I, I feel, someone once said that um, the thing most people regret when they die is not um, living up to the potential, like living up to their potential. And I think I spend like a lot of time thinking about that of like trying to like figure out what your potential is. And then like right now, I like became like a moderately successful public artist last year. My Instagram channel is um, light 
versus light. It's at light versus light. Um, no, I don't need to plug it, but sure. If anyone wants to follow my Instagram channel and my public art, I am just like on this like quest because my brain injury, like I almost died. And so now it's just like, okay, what's the weird thing you want to do now? Like all right, like I'm going to like find this weird stuff and I'm going to try it and like see what sticks. This has been Mind the Gap, a podcast about sales and marketing alignment put on by Enablix. My name is Nick Lopez. Thanks for listening.